Okay, so let's uh, let's open our Bibles up to Luke chapter three, and let's pray. Oh, Father, once again, we are so grateful for your Word. We are grateful that you have revealed so much uh, that we may understand who you are, who we are, what it is that that you require of us. Thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit uh, to illumine your word and how much we need you to do that. We see the effects of, of, of people who don't have your spirit and the difficulty that they have in being able to, to understand it. And so we are grateful that you, have, um, that you indwell us. Help us to see you this morning now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we looked at the only recorded story of Jesus' youth. How he um, stayed behind um, in the temple that he, uh, as he told his, his, as he told Mary and Joseph, you know, didn't you know that I need to be in my father's house? That can also be translated, don't, didn't you know that I need to be about my father's business? That was right after, of course, you know, why have you treated us this way? Um, your father and I were anxiously searching for you. And Jesus immediately uh, puts it that, you know, God is my father. I am unique. And so even at a young age, Jesus is coming into an understanding of who he is and what his relationship to God is. Is and keep in mind that in the uh, in first century times, being the son meant that you basically were on equal footing with the father. You had the authority of the father, and so if you were in the family business, dealing with you was just the same as dealing with the father, and so. All of these things are coming together to, to uh, again, demonstrate who Jesus is. He's that unique man who is also, he's fully man, yet he is also at the same time fully God. And so, as we come to chapter 3, Luke is going to shift gears. And we, we move into now um, the time of a public ministry. So, Luke 3, beginning verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iterea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So, Luke now is setting a historical context. Now, as often is with historical contexts, we're trying to figure out, all right, when in time is this? And so he's just listed out five rulers and two uh, high priests. What's interesting, we'll deal with the high priests first here real quick, Annas and Caiaphas... Um, normally 
when you became high priest, how long were you high priest? Were there term limits for a high priest? There's no term limit because you'd be looking for another lifetime. I remember a joke uh, when I was a kid about the president of Haiti. He had just, you know, been elected president for life. And his, the cartoon said, you know, I must immediately begin campaigning for a second term. And so the high priest was normally appointed for life. Not so with Annas. Annas was deposed by the Romans. Yet, he still retained power. In fact, um, the outer courts of the temple became known as the Bazaar of Annas. He got a slice. Uh, there's talk about 10% for the big guy, right? In the news now often. Annas got his cut. And the way that he got rich was because all of the sacrifices that came through the temple, well, they had to be perfect. And the only way to make sure that you had a perfect sacrifice was to buy it at the temple. And when you bought your sacrifice at the temple, Annas got his cut. And you had to use Jewish money. And so you had money lenders. And you had the money changers. And Annas got his slice from them too. So can you imagine what the reaction of Annas and Caiaphas might be to Jesus when not once, but twice, he goes into the temple and starts kicking people out because you have changed. My, my father's house is to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves, den of robbers. And so Annas and Caiaphas are kind of co-high priests. Now maybe Luke has got that in mind when he's talking about Tiberius Caesar. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about how Augustus Caesar ruled until 14 AD. The last three years of his reign, he did not rule alone. He had brought on Tiberius, who he had identified as his heir, Tiberius came in as kind of a co-regent in the last three years. And so from 11 AD, he was a co-regent with Tiberius, with Augustus, excuse me. And so we've got this 11 AD, 14 AD on one end. And then there's another date that we need to go back and grab. And that's the, uh, when Herod the Great died. Herod the Great died in 4 BC. Now, why do we need to know the date that Herod the Great died? Got to think back a couple weeks. Jesus was born in his Jesus was born while Herod the Great was alive. So, the latest that Jesus' birth can be is April of 4 BC. That's the latest that Jesus' birth can be. And realistically, it's probably it's going to have to be a few months back because Herod was doing some things um, in the last part of his reign. So when Herod dies, originally three of his sons are appointed to positions of power. Herod was a king. 
and nobody came in and took his whole kingdom. Rome split it up. And so three of his sons became tetrarchs. Tetrarch literally means a fourth. And so the kingdom got divvied up a bit. Now, one of these sons was Aristobulus, and Aristobulus had a daughter whose name is Herodias. Anybody recognize that name? Okay, so she is actually the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Herod the Great had ten wives. In fact, he had two that had the same name. So when you see Miriamne one and Miriamne two, they were both wives of Herod the Great. Two of his other sons were Herod Antipas and Herod Philip. Or not actually not Herod Philip, just, just Philip. So Philip is a tetrarch. Herod Antipas is a tetrarch. So when we read, in fact, uh, today when we're reading uh, here that Herod Antipas is a tetrarch, he's the one who is going to imprison John the Baptist and ultimately kill him. Philip was actually the best of the Herods, um, and he uh, renovated a city, and that city ended up being known as Caesarea Philippi. So when you see Caesarea Philippi, that was the city of Philip, the son of Herod the Great. One other thing that Herod starts doing, in 19 BC, Herod starts renovating the temple. And you go, all right, nice piece of trivia. What does that have to do with the price of tea in China? And it's this. Remember, when you, when you look in John 2.20, the Jews are talking about how Herod was working on the temple for 46 years. 46 years was he building this temple. Well, 46, from if you move forward from 19 B.C., 46 years puts you in 27 A.D. So, when Jesus, when you look in Luke 3, 23, Jesus was about 30 years of age when he began his public ministry. If you date from 11 A.D., all of those things fit. 4 B.C. to 26 A.D. is 30 years. It's 46 for the building of the temple. And so all of those things come into focus. Because frankly, when it comes to Herod Antipas and Philip, they both reign from 4 B.C. into the 30s A.D. And so they cover the whole realm there. Does that make sense? So again, some of your con commentators are going to be split as to the date of this uh, a date of 26 for John the Baptist beginning his ministry would fit all of the known data if you go from the beginning of uh, the co-regency for Tiberius you'll see some that are going to put it at 28 or 29 AD you know something else comes out about this there's a reference here to Lysanias being the tetrarch of Abilene this is one of these places where Luke had a bad eye in academia because people said, ah, here's why Luke isn't accurate. Because we can't find anything about this Lysanias other than a guy who was about 30 BC. So Luke is wrong.
Now, um, there's something that you find to be true when it comes to archaeology and the Bible. I don't know if you know this. You remember a fellow by the name of Uriah the Hittite? Who was Uriah the Hittite? Bathsheba's first husband. Up until the early 1900s, Uriah the Hittite was a prime example used by liberals to say the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about because we can't find anything anywhere that refers ever to a Hittite in secular history. Well, they just hadn't looked in the right place yet. Because all of a sudden, some archaeological digs reveal some information that not only were there Hittites, there were Hittite dynasties, previously unknown. And so all of a sudden, there's these dynasties. This nation has all kinds of influence in the ancient world that we just didn't know about. So... Um, you know, if you want to try and poke holes in the Bible, archaeology is probably not the place you want to try. What's the other thing that one would think of? When was Luke written? Don't think about it from a year. Think about it this way. Were people who were alive when these events happened still alive when Luke wrote his gospel? Yes. So if Luke is all of a sudden publishing things that aren't true, wouldn't you think that immediately people would go, hey, wait a minute, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. And if you've got those things that aren't right, that are factually incorrect, then what would be a general label that we could attach to that? Fake news, and what's one word to use? Liar or error. Now, what just happened when you're establishing the canon of the Scripture? You're going to put something in there that you know to be factually wrong? No, that's not going to happen. And so again, as Luke is publishing these things, and again, going back to, ha, here's a chance to beat on this nail again. Why is Luke writing the book? So that Theophilus would, three words, I want three, know with certainty. So again, when you're writing something with that basis, you're not going to have historical errors in there, especially when it's something here that's at the very beginning. So he sets the historical context and now the word of God comes to John. Now it's interesting. When you see word of God, who do you think of? Who was referred to as the word of God? Jesus, Jesus was. And, Je and, and the Greek word for that is logos. Except that's not this word. This is rhema. Which just means this. The way that John the Baptist is being referred to, the way he's being introduced here, is the same way most of the Old Testament prophets were introduced. So when it says in Ezekiel, the word of the Lord came 
to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. All of those, that's the same type of introduction here. So, now think back. You have the Old Testament. You have the New Testament. And you've got a period of time in between those two that's generally referred to as what? Oh, Emery, you're using the nice, the nice official name for it, the, the intertestamental period, right? Yeah. So many things happen in that time. What's the other way it's referred to? Go ahead. I know you know. It's the 400 years of silence. Who's the last prophet in the Old Testament? Malachi, the Italian guy, right? In about 430 BC. So you've got Malachi, and what is Malachi, what is his last prophecy about? The forerunner. So you've got the guy who's going to come and who's going to be the forerunner for Messiah. And then you've got nothing. And so who's the next prophet to show up on the scene? John the Baptist. And who's John the Baptist going to be like in more ways than one? He's like Elijah. When you think of Elijah, who, who, what do you think of when you think of Elijah? Prickly. Yeah, prickly. <laughs> That's a good word. Was 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 he a you know was he a night was he a gentle man? That's rough around the edges. So you know is he? Would Elijah be wearing a tie this morning? No, he wouldn't. He he's a rough and tumble guy. Why is he a rough and tumble guy? Because he's got a rough and tumble message. Remember, when Elijah comes on the scene, what's happening chronologically when Elijah's around? They're still a northern kingdom. Are they following after God in the northern kingdom? No. No. And so he's got a hard message. And it's a hard message of, you need to repent, and you need to turn. What's going to be the message of John the Baptist? You need to repent. And who's he bringing this message to? Jews. Exactly. And so, this whole thing, there are all kinds of twists and turns in here. If you were a Jew who was even moderately familiar with the Old Testament, you would know what's happening because it's in line with prophecy. And so, again, this is, this is something that's not being done in Jerusalem but nor is it being done quietly. Because we're going to see that people are going out 
to the wilderness to see John the Baptist, and they're coming from everywhere to come and hear him. Because when he shows up, remember, what, what, what are Jews famous for desiring? Signs. They want signs. Well, guess what? John the Baptist is a walking sign. And so when you have, and, and, and again, there's, there's still, um, well, how far down is it? Uh, we'll get down to it here in a little bit. There's an expectation. There are still people who are looking for Messiah. They're looking for the consolation of Israel. They're looking for the restoration of the kingdom. All of those are, are kingdom terms. And the, there are many who are watching. Remember, Simeon in the temple. What was he looking for? He's looking for the consolation of Israel. Anna is looking for the same thing. And so, as all of these things are happening, bless you, as all of these things are taking place, you can see that there's, um, it's like a pot that's starting to boil. What do you see in a pot that's starting to boil? What's the first thing you're going to notice? Bubbles coming up off the bottom. And all of a sudden, you look at the water in the pot and it's starting to move. That's what's happening here in their time. There's this current that's starting to flow because here comes the voice. Jack, Sir. Before you move on, I'd just like to add an exclamation point to your previous points about um, archaeology and the Bible. Mm -hmm. The reliability of the Bible is critical if there's going to be certainty, right? Yep. Well, there was a deal with Pontius Pilate. There was a Stella discovered that had Pontius Pilate reigning 10 years before Jesus. Okay. And so they're going to see, Bible's wrong, can't trust it. Then there was some more archaeological digs, and they discovered some more inscriptions. Pontius Pilate had two reigns hmm. separated by a time when he wasn't there. So the first one was before Jesus. The second one was right when Jesus was. You know, reliable Bible. we do. And in fact, to the point that when you come to something and it's, okay, Lysanias, well, they found additional inscriptions that, oh yeah, there was another Lysanias, and it's in the right time. So when, you, when we come to something, um, and there are still a few, uh, there was one from Daniel um, that uh, had to do with Belshazzar's father, I think his name was Nabonidus, uh, I may not have that right. As more information comes in, guess what happens? The Bible actually had it right. Um, so Darius the Mede. Right now to history, he's unknown. But I will tell you something. When all of a sudden, when all the facts come in, who are they going to find? They're going to find Darius the Mede. 
and they'll find who it archaeological expert who has said there has not been one archaeological discovery made that has contradicted the Bible. Yep. And so again, it is, and, and, and Alan used the word that's really, that, that's, that's critical. It's reliable. It is reliable. We don't need to go somewhere else. In fact, if you want to do some archaeology, here's the best book for you to take along. is right here. And so we can have confidence in God's Word, and that's just one reason. The archaeology, that's one reason. So here you have John the Baptist, John the Baptizer, Verse 3, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. That's coming out of Isaiah chapter 40. So, why is John the Baptist here? What's his mission? He is preaching salvation, repentance, and baptism. He's baptizing in the Jordan, and it's for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Now, for a Jew, Jews were very familiar with baptism. It just wasn't for them. Now, they were baptized as a nation, right, when they came across the Jordan River entering into the Promised Land. That was referred to as being baptized. The reason most Jews are going to be familiar with baptism is because that's what happened to Gentiles when they wanted to become Jews. Not only did they get circumcised, they were baptized. What was baptism, even for a Jew, what was baptism a symbol of? It's death, exactly. There is a former life. And as you, and baptism meant immersion, okay? Didn't mean sprinkling, you were getting dunked. So the idea of going under the water you have died to your former way of life, and you are being raised to a new type of life. And so the same thing that Paul was writing in Romans 6 when he talks about you've been buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus, that was the same thing minus the Jesus part for a Jew. That it was You were dying to your former way of life. You are being now re resurrected, raised up, to walk in newness of life. Now for them, that meant you were dead to being a Gentile, and now you're a Jew. So imagine their horror when all of a sudden this baptism is being applied to them. They're God's chosen people. What do you mean I need to be baptized? What do you mean I need to repent? 
would they get the idea of repentance? They'd get that. Actually, they'd even get it for themselves. Because again, remember that as they're coming in, for many of these people, following the law has been by rote and when it's convenient. And so this idea here of repentance, and we're going to see it here when we see the response of people to the message of John. It's, in fact, it's not just repentance. John says there's something else that needs to be here too. Verse 7, So he began saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, there's a parallel passage to this, and the brood of vipers uh, in that parallel passage was directed specifically to a particular group of people, the Pharisees. Now, Luke here is applying that as a very broad brush. He's not being specific. He's, he's, he's applying this as a broad brush. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, if you're going to flee, then this is what your fleeing needs to look like. If you're going to flee rightly, here's what it's supposed to look like. Therefore, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. Indeed, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. So every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, is John coming bearing a, a, a touchy-feely, feel-good message? No. No. You need to repent. And in fact, not only do you need to repent, here's what your repentance looks like. It looks different from the way that you've been previously acting. This idea of, of bearing fruits in keeping with repentance. How would you refer to that now? If you were talking to somebody, uh, if somebody were to ask you, what does it mean? What does it look like to be a Christian? What would you, what would you say to them? Ooh, show me your works. Why? Evidence of? Of? Okay, so again, there's repentance. And the idea of repentance, again, uh, we talked about this at the men's, fellow, uh, the men's prayer thing the other night. You have confession, and confession is what? Agreeing with God, right? I've sinned. That's confession. Repentance is what? It, that's right. It's, it's literally to change direction. So, my life formerly was in this direction. This is my manner of living. This is what characterizes me. This is what I practice. And the idea of repentance is, I am going to turn my back on that, and I'm turning to something else. And that is to be evidenced by changes in my character. It's to be evidenced by changes in my conduct. What I do, how I act, what I say, how I think. All of those things need to characterize 
me from that point in time where I've repented and I've changed direction. Now, for John's audience, actually, let's back up. When is John saying that time needs to be? Now. Acts is already at the root of the trees. Uh, Considering that his next phrase is, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit gets cut down and tossed into the fire. And what's fire a picture of in this context? Judgment. So, you are facing judgment and you are facing imminent judgment. So this is not something you take under advisement. This isn't something that you review with a committee. This isn't some type of a, um, a council that you form that might last for a few years. And, you know, and then maybe we come up with an idea. No, this is now. You need to turn. You need to repent. And you need to do it now. And people are getting that. Verse 10, And the crowds were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? Wasn't that the question that they asked Peter? Remember when Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost? And they're cut to the quick. Then what shall we do? And what did Peter tell them? Repent and be baptized. So baptism was what? Was baptism salvation? Were people saved because they got baptized? No. So what was baptism? What kind of symbol? Tangible. Tangible? Public. That's a public declaration. And so, and again, it's, a, it's, it's, it's like marriage, right? Because marriage, what, there's a bride and there's a groom. What have they already done? They've basically already committed themselves to one another, right? This is the public act of that. Same with baptism. It's a public act for something that's already occurred in the heart. So what shall we do? Verse 11, And he would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food is to do likewise. So here's one that's just very, very, very basic. When you have those who have, and you have those who have not, the haves share with the have-nots. Now notice, it does not say, if you have not, you take from those who have. You don't do that. This was voluntary. And so, the idea of, uh, if, if, if you've got somebody who doesn't have a tunic, the tunic was what you wore on the inside. It was kind of your, your everyday, your garb. If somebody doesn't have that, well, well then what are they wearing? Not much. So the idea is you help to care for those who are destitute. When you have somebody who has food and you have somebody who doesn't have food, what is the consequence of not having food? You starve, right? So those who have help to care for those who don't for their basic daily needs. 
What did the early church do with that one, by the way? So they have all things in common, and those who had property would sell their property, bring the proceeds of that to the apostles so that that could be distributed to those. That was a means of providing care for others. So for people in general, it's if you have, you help take care of those who don't. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized. Stop there for a second. Was tax collecting a popular job? No, right? Because the tax, who was collecting the taxes? Rome. And Rome was viewed as what by Jews? Yeah, that's the, um, you know, they're the bad guys. So when you talk about, you know, oppressor is a word that gets thrown around a lot in our culture. Oppressor was far more characteristic of the Romans, far more. And But the Romans, mm, they're kind of smart. They don't send in the army necessarily to collect the taxes. They'd get native people to do it for them. Now, what was something that was very common for a tax collector? Oh, yeah, they're not, they're not skimming. Because <laughs> skimming is the idea that you know, you're taking part of what it is that, that you're collecting. They added extra. So you already had pretty high taxes to begin with. Now the tax collector says, hey, that $50 bill that you owe? No, 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 no. It's 90 And he gets to pocket the difference. That's why tax collectors were viewed as traitors. They were despised. They were hated. And most of them were rich. And the, the way they got rich was off of other people's backs. And so... They were despised people. Remember, what is the, you know, the Pharisees look at Jesus, you, you, you hang out with tax collectors. You can't, I guess if you were a prostitute, you might be lower than a tax collector, but only by a little tiny bit. And so utterly despised. So the tax collectors come to be baptized. And they say to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Notice, he does not say, Don't collect the taxes. Jesus was not anti-tax. You render to Caesar what's due to Caesar. You render to God the things that are due to him. Just don't add extra. Don't fleece the sheep that are around you. Don't do that. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force. And literally the idea here, the language is, don't shake people down. So when you see the movies where the mafioso goes into the neighborhood and he's literally just you know, grabbing people and seeing what he can force out of them and extort out of them. That's the picture here. Don't shake people down. And do not...
accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. So what's the common thread? Don't take money by force. Don't accuse anyone falsely. What's the idea of, of, of accusing someone falsely? If uh, there's, in fact, this is, this is in our society. You may not know about it. There's something in law enforcement known as asset forfeiture. Asset forfeiture applies when you have certain acts that produce money and revenue. So, for instance, uh, if you are a drug dealer and it can be shown and proven that you are a drug dealer, then the government is allowed to seize, to take by force, any of the proceeds of your drug dealing. So the nice car that you drive, that now belongs to the government. The money in your bank account now belongs to the government. Houses that you've purchased, property that you've purchased, bling that you've bought, that all now belongs to the government under asset forfeiture. That's the idea here. So if somebody were accused of being um, somehow seditious against Rome, then they were, they were condemned and their property was seized. Guess who gets the money for asset forfeiture uh, when, the, when the police arrest a drug dealer and they take a bunch of money and they take his car and they take his house? Who gets it? Do you know? Local law enforcement. Now, it just seems to me that there just might be an inkling of there'd be a real good reason for us to find out that this guy's a drug dealer so that we can have that stuff. A lot of undercover cars that cops have were seized under asset forfeiture. Trust me, that's why they've got Camaros and, and Mustangs and Firebirds. Normally, they wouldn't be buying those. You were going to say, ask something, Julie? Oh, so gives each law enforcement that does the bust gets to keep? They, get, they at least get a large portion thereof. You're talking about agency. She agency. Not the, the, not the individual the officers, but the agency does. Yes. They get to keep it. A large portion of it. Yes. For drug running. Yeah. 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 Not because it was a drug. It means they are nice classic airplanes that allow the wrong people to borrow their airplane and now belongs to the museum. Yep. And so again, that the idea here for when when John is talking to the soldiers, it's don't rip people off. Don't accuse them falsely so that you can line your own pockets and be content with your wages. Now, one of the reasons that people got shook down, soldiers didn't necessarily get paid very well. Do you know one of the reasons why when you go into Mexico, there, there's a big, you know, the federales get a real rap in Mexico. Do you know why that culture exists? They don't pay the officers well. So if you've got a guy who's on starvation wages, is it surprising that they turn to bribery or that they turn to some other means? I'm not trying to justify what they're doing, all right? 
So John's response to them is, be content with what you have and don't rip other people off simply because you can. You're in a position of power. Don't abuse it. He doesn't say, stop being soldiers. Why not? You do. Soldiers help keep the peace. In fact, the Roman legions were probably one of the great reasons that there was something called the Pax Romana. The Roman peace. You could travel between places, not just because there were good roads. It's because the bad guys knew that if they were bad and they attacked people, sooner or later, a Roman legion is going to come track them down. Sir? The Pax Romana was the primary uh, earthly reason that the gospel was able to be uh, brought about and Absolutely. Absolutely. And so again, you can see how all of these things are coming to be. You know, Jesus is born at a particular point in time where you have a common language throughout most of the known world. You've got good roads to be able to get from one place to another. You can do so in relative peace. And so, and uh, frankly, when the persecution comes and all of a sudden uh, you've got Saul of Tarsus running around trying to grab people that, you know, are those who are of the way and bring them before the court, uh, before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. And all of a sudden now people are getting scattered. There's an easy way for them to get from point A to point B. And all of a sudden you see that the gospel does start in Jerusalem and goes to Judea and goes to Samaria and goes to the uttermost parts of the earth. Because God had already greased the skids, so to speak. Well, could be. That's for sure. All right, verse 15. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation, that is a very tame way of describing this. The, the, the words have the aspect of people are on their tiptoes. It is, it's not just, you know, yeah, we think that this is, oh, ooh, ooh. You remember Lyle, when he got really excited, he would get that, he'd get that look on his face. That's what they're talking about. That's what Luke's talking about. People are in a heightened state of awareness. They're expecting something is, is going to happen. Now, while the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. Now, again, it's hard for us to fathom this. When people were looking for the Messiah, what were they expecting him to do? Tear down everything and make it all different. Well, not yeah, tear down everything, make it different, and, and frankly, who's going to be the head? Yeah. 
the Jews. The Jews are going to be the head, not the tail anymore. They're not going to be the small kid on the block. They're going to be the big dog. And that's their expectation. And so now all of a sudden, here comes John. So John, are you the guy? Is it you? And John heads him off at the pass. John said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. I am not fit to be the common slave to this man. I'm not worthy. He is so much higher than me. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Again, he's using a picture here that would be very familiar to everyone in his audience. Now, in this day, you didn't have machinery that would process grain. Machinery that would process grain was called a donkey that would haul along some rocks that are cobbled together. And that rock is being hauled over a flat surface, which is either ground down rock or compacted earth. And it would be in a circle. So you would have something here that, uh, that would be a pillar and there would be a, a a beam coming off of that pillar, and then this donkey would walk, walk in a circle. And what's he doing? He's dragging these rocks over the grain so it can bust up the, the shell and the husk of the, of the grain. And then somebody would go in with a winnowing fork, which was a, like a pitchfork, American Gothic. So they would go in with the pitchfork, take it, and they would throw it up in the air and the, the grain would come apart from the chaff. Chaff would fall away. They would do it during the afternoon when there's a breeze coming through. So they throw it up in the air and the breeze blows the chaff off to the side. Grain falls to the ground. You gather up the grain and you got it enough to either use for your own house or you can take it to the market. The grain is what's valuable. So that is what you're after, right? You want the grain, the wheat, the barley, whatever. What happens to the chaff? Does the chaff have any value? Nope. So what happens to it? It's taken off and it's burned up. You use it to fuel your fire. So I guess it has value in that way. What's the picture here? In fact, once upon a time... Some years from now, Jesus is going to be talking to Peter. And what's he going to say to Peter? Satan has desired to what? Sift you as wheat. What's he getting at? Satan wants to crush you, throw you up, and now... What's Satan want? Does Satan want the wheat? What's Peter's part in that when Satan is sifting him like wheat? Peter's going to be chaff. You're not worth anything. 
the idea here is, is that God is going through. He's, Jesus uses the example of the sheep and the goats. You're a sheep or you're a goat. The sheep come over here to my right because you're going to enjoy, come enjoy the kingdom that has been prepared for you. And if you're a sheep, you're going to life everlasting. And if you're a goat, things are going to be bad for you because you are coming over here to judgment. The wheat is coming over here to be gathered into his barn. The chaff is going over here for fire. And fire again is a picture of judgment. So there's one who's coming. So John's being the voice. And John tries multiple ways to communicate the same message. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. He's not a, he, he is a one-trick pony in that he is a preacher of repentance. But he's not just the same exact message. He'll bring it in different ways to communicate to people the necessity for them to repent and to be converted. Now here, Luke is going to do something. John the Baptist is coming as the forerunner of Christ. Now, there's a period of time when John the Baptist and Jesus are in the public ministry at the same time. Okay? But that isn't what's important to Luke. He's talking about John the Baptist, and so he's going to jump to the end of the story for John. Just so that he can get it out of the way. He's got to put it somewhere. Luke is going to put it here so that he can focus on Jesus. But when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, Herod also added this to them. He locked to them all. He locked John up in prison. So Herodias was actually his um, half niece. So Herod Antipas and Herodias, she is actually Antipas's half niece. She's married to a fellow named Herod Philip, who's a private citizen. He's not a ruler or anything. Antipas is married to someone else. I don't remember her name offhand. Their paths cross. Uh, he is taken with her. So basically, he gets her divorced from her husband. He divorces his wife. And now they have this relationship, which the Jews are going to look at as what? And not just adultery, incest. So Jews, oh, they're not taken to this one. And so John the Baptist, this man is fearless. In fact, if you were going to try to get in trouble, here's probably the fastest way to do it. Tell somebody who has virtually unbridled power, Well, and it's not just speaking truth. It's pointing the finger. And he's right. So not just is he making an accusation. 
Herod knows it's right. And Herod hates him all the more for it. Now, what's interesting is Herod didn't hate John the Baptist as much as somebody else did. Herodias is the one who really hated John. She's the one that was behind much of what ended up happening to him. We'll get there. So he locks John up. So John's baptizing people left and right during his public ministry. Verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. Whoa, wait, stop. Why is Jesus getting baptized? Is he a sinner? Does Jesus have a former life that he needs to turn away from? That he may turn to God? Why is Jesus getting baptized? Gunner? Okay. Any other thoughts? Also, it was the time when God's Holy Spirit came down and God's voice said, This is my son. That's going to happen as a result of it. Why is Jesus getting baptized? Obedience, how? That's the problem. He says John is going to the baptism of repentance, so what makes Jesus Okay. Who's Jesus? Why is Jesus here? Is he identifying with the people? He's identifying with man. He's here for us. He's here for these people. The soldiers, the tax gatherers. Um, that's why he's here. And so because he's going to be our representative, well, then he's going to be treated as we are. And so, it's, a, it's again, it's another way in which he identifies with you and me. So he's baptized. Now, in other past, I'm sorry, go ahead. So, the, um, that's what initiated the presence of the Holy Spirit's power in the ministry. So, so here again, and that's where Brian was going with, with obedience. So, when you have Jesus being baptized, and, and again, if you go to, I think it's Matthew, uh, yeah. You're coming to me. I need to be baptized by you. But what is, how does Jesus respond to him? This is in keeping with righteousness. So he's baptized. And as he's baptized, this, this account is in all four Gospels. Luke is the only one who says that Jesus, after he's baptized, was praying. And as he is praying, you have the heavens opened up and you have this voice coming from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then you see the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove and landing on him. And so here again, Jesus is being singled out. No one else has gotten this response from God. Anybody else getting baptized, there's no heaven opening going, hey, I am happy with this guy. The only, the only person you get that with is Christ. He alone. Right. 
Yep. Well, and again, Jesus has been growing in stature with God and man. How's he? And again, we talked about this last week. How's he growing in stature with God? How's he doing that? He's growing in favor with God. How is that? It's in obedience. As a man, he is consistently submitting his will to God's will. Consistently. Time and time and time again. It's interesting, in all four Gospels, what happens immediately after Jesus' baptism? And this Holy Spirit comes down upon him and lights on him. Yes, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That is the next thing on the on the on the calendar. Now Luke is going to intermit. He's going to put something in here. He puts in a genealogy. Now the genealogy that we run into here is Mary's bloodline. If you compare the the genealogy in Luke three to the genealogy in Matthew one, you'll find that uh, between David and Joseph. They're entirely different. But once you get back to David and going back, they're dead, they're in lockstep. Because again, Mary is also a blood descendant of David through Nathan, David's son Nathan. Joseph is a blood descendant of David through Solomon and the kingly line. So verse 23, and we'll, stop, we'll end with this. Verse 23, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mephat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Hesli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Heber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I mean, so here you have it, all the way back, going all the way back to creation. And here following through. Now, just because we can take a minute to do this.
What's the big deal? When you have these genealogies, why are they there? Okay, so you establish credentials. In this case here, why does Luke put this genealogy here? It's answering the question that's been asked from Genesis. Is this the one? Yeah, so is this the guy? Is this him? And he checks every box. Every prophecy. In fact, the one here is even more important. This genealogy is even more important than the one in Matthew. Do you know why? Say it out loud, buddy. The kingship. Joseph is a direct descendant of Jehoiachin. Why can the why can the kingly crown not be traced through Jehoiachin? He's cursed. When you go back to Jeremiah, God said, "You write this man down childless." Fact of the matter was he had sons. He did. They were not to rule, though. Why not? Because he was a wicked man. Now, God had made a covenant with David. What was God's covenant with David? That's right. The crown was always going to be through David's line. Just not that one. And so here when you have, and, and okay, I, I read something in a commentary. You can't hold on to this one too tightly, all right? Because in some ways it's an argument from silence. What would happen um, if, if a man didn't have sons? Are there any women noted in Luke's genealogy? There's no women. No women. There are women mentioned in Matthew's. Right? Because when it talks about Boaz, now Boaz is the one who it's coming through, but Boaz was the husband of Ruth. And you had different women who were brought in, usually because there was a story that went along with them being there. Here, the idea is, is that this is, this is Mary's heritage. This is, this is hers. It's still traced through the sons. The, some of the commentators were saying that Heli uh, didn't have sons. He had Mary and, and, and other daughters. And so Joseph ended up being counted as his son. I wouldn't hold on to that one all that tightly. All right. Questions. I know we're covering a lot of ground, but we kind of have to. I wonder if uh, the genealogy, why 
right after God says, you want to my beloved son, you want to was connecting Jesus, the son of Adam, as God was pleased to fulfill his promise and send the son of God to send him out. Yeah, could be. This was his pleasure. I mean, and it's his plan, right? In the fullness of time, Jesus was born of a virgin, born under the law. And so, again, Luke is being deliberate in what, sto- what narrative he is drawing from. Again, there's all kinds of narrative, there's all kinds of stories that he can use. These are the ones that the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to use. And so, at the end of the day, here, now we have there's a public ministry. We have a public ministry of the John the Baptist. We have Jesus now coming in. They've met. Luke doesn't tell the whole story of those, right? We're not going to see John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Luke's not going to record that one. And yet, John knows who Jesus is. In fact, in John, what's what's John going to say about himself? Here come his disciples. Boy, you know, Jesus is is gathering all these people to himself. And what's John's response? He, He must increase. I must decrease. He's the one that they're waiting for. He's the one I get to be the forerunner for. I'll be the voice in the wilderness for him. And so here he comes. The cool thing for us, we get to wait for him to come back. And he will. In his good time. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are Lord of time. That this came about in your prescribed time. We read all those names in that genealogy, some of which the only place they're recorded, the only place they'd be known is here. People that, outside of the people who knew them in life, there'd be no reason to know these guys. You were faithful to your promise. You were faithful in your promise to Abraham. You were faithful in your promise to Adam and Eve. You were faithful in your promise to David. And Lord, how we long for the day when Jesus, in fact, is going to rule from a literal throne on this earth in his kingdom. And we long for that day. Thank you that you're going to bring it about. You'll bring it about in your good time. Help us to be faithful while we wait and help us to be busy while we wait, being about your business. So that when someone asks, why are you doing that? We could respond as Jesus did. Don't you know that I had to be about my father's business? In Christ's name, amen.